when Terry Bellinger uh, called last September to ask if we would curate an exhibition and give this talk, he also said there, there are two stories uh, Marianne Malkin has told me that you need to know. First, she remembers that Lucille was a popular book with her mother and her aunts, but when she was coming up, she and her friends got it stale and dated, no longer exciting to them. We're delighted to be here this evening with Marianne with it. The second story <coughs> is that of a Boston bookseller in the 1930s who found one book so ubiquitous that he got mad and found a way to get even. Copies of Lucille so clogged his business that he took to tossing the editions, which turned up ever so frequently in lot purchases, uh, into trunks. And he would pack a couple of these trunks with his luggage for the annual book uh, hunting trip to England. As his ship reached mid-Atlantic, he took great pleasure <laughs> in tossing these Lucilles, one by one, into the sea, each of them one more copy, which would never again wander back into his stock. <laughs> In light of this story, and the fact that tens of thousands of copies of hundreds of editions of Lucille were sold between its first appearance in 1860 and its disappearance from publishers' lists by the beginning of World War I, Lucille can hardly be said to be an unknown book. Indeed, my wife and I have come to believe that nearly every bookshop and many antique shops uh, have one copy in stock, a copy that seems to have been there for a very long time. Still, it seems safe to say that hardly anyone now knows the book, and still fewer care. Uh, although we're told that the Rotunda draws uh, some 100,000 visitors a year, many of them during the summer, and uh, some of the people who came in while we were installing the exhibit uh, uh, last Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, may remember it. Uh, they were certainly asking questions for us. Who are these Lucille? Why have we collected ourselves 140 copies in the last, uh, all different, I should say, in the last 10 years, and what have we learned about them? The story of Lucille takes many directions, and we've really only just begun to explore most of them adequately. What we offer this evening is necessarily an interim report. Lucille was the work of the poet Owen Meredith, which was the pseudonym of Edward Robert Bulwer-Lytton. I'll share with you a brief sketch of his life but for the details, I refer you to the life chronology that is among your handouts. Lytton was born in November 1831 to the novelist Edward Bulwer Lytton and his wife Rosina. Generally ignored by his parents, he was raised by a nurse until being sent to Harrow at 14. There he began to write poetry. And during this time, he also gained the attention of the critic John Forster, who would serve as his guardian, confidant, and literary agent for most of his career. Lytton embarked on a diplomatic career in 1850 solely at the behest of his father. Despite Robert's literary predilections, the novelist wanted his son to take up a profession that would enable him to support himself and Nebworth, a huge family estate that he would someday inherit. But the young man refused to deny his muse so the story of his life is a patchwork of diplomatic postings and the publication of new works. It was also Bulwer-Lytton who insisted that Robert assume, assume a pseudonym in order to avoid any confusion between the works of the father and the son. Interestingly, Lytton discontinued the use of Owen Meredith in 1868 after the poet George Meredith raised the same objection. 
His early diplomatic service did, however, yield one prize for Lytton, for it was during his posting to Florence that he encountered the Brownings, who not only encouraged his poetic aspirations, but became lifelong friends. I might note that Elizabeth Browning's novel in verse, Aurora Lee, served as a prototype for Lucille, and like Lucille, it also saw many editions in America. Lytton's first book, Clytemnestra, The Earl's Return, The Artist, and Other Poems, was published by Chapman and Hall in 1855 to general critical acclaim. He then continued to compose poetry as he moved among continental embassies, publishing a collection of 101 poems in 1859, followed by Lucille in April of 1860. Although Lytton's literary popularity waned after the publication of Lucille, he continued to publish poetry even as he was taking on ever more important diplomatic jobs. His foreign service career reached its apex in 1876 when Disraeli appointed him Viceroy of India. The term of his <coughs> India service is the only period of Lytton's life when he did not publish probably because he was preoccupied with such matters as Queen Victoria's coronation as Empress of India, the supervision of the Afghan war, and famine in southern a India. But his return to London following the Liberal Party's uh, victory of the 1880 election saw the newly created Earl of Lytton once again writing. He labored for one and a half years writing a biography of his father, then returned again to poetry which he continued to write even after being named ambassador to France in 1887. Lytton died suddenly in Paris in November 1891. His final work, a poem, Mara, was published the following year. At that time, the critic W.A. Mallet offered this fitting summary of the double facets of Lytton's life. He, of all English poets, is the one who, since the days of Byron, has had the largest experience of life. There have been many men of affairs, like Mr. Gladstone and the late Lord Darby, who have been devoted to literature and added to it. But literature to them has been a relaxation, a favorite amusement. With Lord Lytton, it was a pursuit, a lifelong passion, as fascinating as the most fascinating society, as serious as the most serious duty. While few of our modern poets have excelled him in devotion to his art, none have come near to him in point of mundane experience. Few men have ever combined, as he did, humor, fastidiousness, shrewdness, and savoir-faire with ultra-sensitive sympathy and grave meditative philosophy. He was absolutely spontaneous and unaffected. And yet anyone fit to judge of him who was familiar with him under such conditions the common conditions of common worldly companionship would have said that in his best moment, one of his best poems was himself. Now, whether or not Lucille was Lytton's best poem, it was clearly his most widely known. So let's take a few minutes here to tell its story and maybe offer a little sampling of poetry. A novel set in verse, Lucille is a romantic story in the French fashion. Indeed, the plot line was freely borrowed from George Sand's Lavinia, a story first published in 1833. Uh, we, were we were really delighted to discover just a couple of weeks ago 
that Lavinia was in print as recently as 1876. I'm sorry, 1976, in a new translation published by the Shameless Hussy Press of New Lorenzo, California. But back to the story of Lucille. The heroine is a young, wealthy widow, Lucille Contessa de Nevers, a woman capable of committing great indiscretions while remaining remarkably virtuous. The poem opens with Lucille's letter to Lord Alfred Bargrave, a former lover whom she had not seen in a decade. The affair had ended badly. Bargrave describes its end in this way. She bored me. I showed it. She saw it. What next? She reproached. I retorted. Of course she was back. Lucille, however, still harbors affections for him. And upon hearing of his betrothal to Matilda Darcy, she bids Bargrave to come visit her in hope that the vicissitudes of ten years upon his person will quench passion fueled by the memories of a dashing youth. This scheme fails magnificently, for not only are Lucille's emotions intensified, but Alfred once again finds himself in love with her. Further complicating the matter is the simultaneous arrival of Duke Eugène de Louvois, a French libertine who is also in love with Lucille. The Duke, recognizing in Alfred's arrival, deceives the Englishman into believing that Lucille has already agreed to marry him and dispatches Alfred back to his fiancée, only to have Lucille reject his, that is, Louvois' a proposal. Some time passes, and the three players in this love triangle meet again, this time at the spy to M, where they are joined by Matilda, who is now Vargrave's wife. The jealous and vindictive Duke sets about creating discard in the Vargrave marriage, but is foiled by Lucille, who sets things right between the couple. The Duke flees to join the Foreign Legion. The happy couple returns to England, and Lucille continues her journey through the fashionable haunts of Europe. The Crimean War, 1853-1856, the War of Florence Nightingale and the Light Brigade, is the setting of the final scenes of the poem. Lucille, now Sir Seraphine, a sister of charity, is nursing a young man, Bargrave's son, who is pining for the love of the niece of a French general. The general is, of course, this is de Lavoie. <laughs> Lucille contrives a meeting with the Duke, and during the interview, she so softens his heart that he finally relinquishes his grudge against Bargrave and grants permission for the marriage he had previously forbidden. Final curtain. Lucille was an immediate bestseller upon its English publication in 1860. The reading public charmed by its romantic plot and the novelty of its rhymed couplets. But as is often the case, the critics were less than pleased with Meredith's work. The critic in Blackwood's magazine railed against the Frenchness of the work. That is, its forays into the world of French heroines, French manners, and French morals. Clearly inappropriate fare for English readers. The London Review questioned the practice that Meredith and his peers made of abandoning older forms of poetry in favor of innovative forms of expression that generally failed in their artistic purpose. There was also the charge of plagiarism made by the Literary Gazette. The first section of Lucille is so indebted to Lavinia that Meredith found it necessary to respond to his accusers 
in the preface to the third edition. Then also, several reviewers wondered, why had Meredith taken the components of a successful novel, that is, a complex plot, detailed character development, and artful scene setting, and forced upon them the burden of meter? As one put it, is Lucille a poem at all? It might also be, almost be described as a three-volume vol novel rendered into a kind of verse. For in the end, it was the poetry of Lucille that made the critics howl. Meredith's choice of anapestic couplets was deemed inappropriate for a work of such length, and his method of setting his verse provides no small problem for the reader. The reviewer for the Dublin University magazine wrote, perhaps the worst and most fatal fault in the book is its meter. It is simply provoking to see such costly jewels so poorly set. Attempting to avoid the sameness of a pause at the end of each couplet, Mr. Meredith seldom pauses there, save about once in 20 lines. And in another review, the versification is so bad as again and again to interrupt with disgust what would otherwise have been a very interesting story. The critics, however, could also not ignore those elements that endeared Lucille to the reading public. Meredith was a master of description. Whether his subject was a storm raging over the Pyrenees, the moral character of an English lord, or the personal charm of his heroine. <coughs> Here is his description of Lucille on the occasion of her reunion with Alfred at the poem's beginning. Her figure, though slight, had revived everywhere the luxurious proportions of youth, and her hair, once shorn as an offering to passionate love, now floated or rested redundant above her airy pure forehead and throat, gathered loose under which, by one violet knot, the profuse milk-like folds of a cool modest garden garment reposed, rippled faint by the breath they half hid, half disclosed, and her simple attire thus in all things revealed the fine art which so artfully all things conceal. Meredith's earlier work had been admired not only for the force and delicacy of his expression, but also for the fluency of his verse. And despite the problems with Lucille's poetry mentioned earlier, there is within the poem 7,000 plus lines not only a great deal of pleasant verse, but also some that is notable. But enough about the critics now. As our bookshelves continue to fill with ever more editions of Lucille, I've kept asking myself the same question. I ask for them occasionally, too. Um, why was Lucille so popular? How did this poem sustain enough interest that publishers felt confident enough about sales that they would undertake the expense of not one, but several richly illustrated editions not to mention the myriad binding variations. Why was Lucille's popularity so much greater in America than in England? Ultimately, I believe, the answer to each of these questions may ultimately come down to a matter of timing. Lucille simply arrived in America at the right time. Ten years earlier or later, and its success might have been quite modest. Antebellum reading tastes in America leaned heavily towards the novel, but middle-class Americans believed that poetry 
claimed a higher place as an art, and this in really ensured the inclusion of poetry in family libraries. Longfellow's narrative poetry was phenomenally successful from the mid-1830s onward, and his popularity was mirrored, though not overshadowed, by the works of Tennyson and Robert Browning in the late 1850s. So when, in 1861, Pickner and Field first offered Lucille in a little blue and gold volume for 75 cents, Meredith's first epic must have seemed tailor-made for its American audience. Readers enthralled by Hiawatha and Evangeline were ready to embrace Lucille's romantic story, gorgeous description, and easy verse. And it certainly did not harm sales that Meredith had scattered throughout the poem epigrams, aphorisms, and moral sentiments that were not only quotable, but eminently suitable for transcription into an autograph album. For example, I wish I could get you at least to agree to take life as it is, and consider with me, if it be not all smiles, that it is not all sneers. It admits honest laughter and needs honest tears. Copied a lot of times, I think. Another factor contributing to Lucille's sustained success can be found in the depiction of its heroine. Lucille is an independent woman, alone in the world and confident in her own fashion. Although she's involved with two men, she belongs to neither. And she not only takes charge of her own destiny, but she seeks to improve the lives of others. Such characteristics would certainly appeal to women who were starting to stir to feminist calls, while Lucille's moral correctness cannot help but attract those of more conservative taste. In the end, however, it is probably Meredith's father, Bulwer Lytton, who best sums up the appeal of Lucille. He wrote, I send you some proofs I have read through. I can see very little to revise. The fault is incurable. It is in the wonderful excess of richness. There are too many words to one truth. But so far as I have thus read, I feel more and more the ease brightness and lightness of the whole. It has the indefinite thing, charm. The success of Lucille was one of the great ironies of Lytton's career. In 1853, he had written, I can never admit to myself that poetry is a thing to be placed with albums on a drawing room table and be turned over by every stupid chance comer that may enter half an hour too soon for dinner to be sung by a young lady at a piano, and there end. But those lushly illustrated and extravagantly bound Lucilles were indeed ensconced on innumerable drawing room tables. In fact, in 1877, a publisher's weekly poll of bookstores proclaimed Lucille the most saleable volume of poetry. My wife, I deeply regret to say, gets all of the good lines this evening. And, and most of them are not Meredith's, but her own. Uh, if Lucille's first 50 years in America were an adventure in open-armed welcome, her next 75 were characterized by benign neglect. <coughs> My contribution is to turn to those many editions, between four and 500 as best we can estimate at this point, depending in part on how you define the word edition. Uh, the text of Lucille seems to be essentially invariant. 
Uh, the book was made into a play published in St. Louis about 1900, which appears to survive in a, in a unique copyright copy at the Library of Congress. Uh, and the story was reduced to prose even more relentless than Meredith's poetry by Harrison Smith Morris in Tales from Ten Poets, 1893, two ball. We found no indication, however, that Meredith ever felt called to revise Lucille. He did add an apologetic preface to later English editions, which in turn appears in some, but relatively few, American editions. And so, apart from possible accidentals in the multiple settings, there's perhaps one change. I just noticed uh, uh, in, before installing the exhibit that in some, but not in all, of the later editions, the Comtesse uh, de Nevers uh, seems to become the Countess de Nevers, and the Duke, D-U-C, de Lavoie, becomes the Duke, D-U-K-E. The complication is that Meredith, in the, in the early editions, seems consistently to use uh, Duke, D-U-C, when naming de Lavoie, but Duke, D-U-K-E, when he's referring to him. So they're both there. Uh, so I'm going to have to collate the early and late texts and see if, in fact, there was some adjustment, uh, which may mean that I may finally be forced to read the damn book. And I still haven't done it. I've tried, but I can't. Uh, in any case, to keep things relatively simple this evening, I'm not going to worry about the text and therefore not use the language of edition, issue, and state. For the next half hour, anything in a binding that differs from other bindings is an addition. And if two bindings are very close or very similar uh, or the same, uh, but the book has a clearly different uh, title page or text block, uh, that's an addition too. In those terms, by visiting libraries and soliciting help via snail mail and over the internet, uh, I've collected records on something over 1,000 copies of Lucille. When you batch those together uh, and get the duplicates uh, together, you're left at this point with about 400 identifiable editions. A lot of those 400 are held by only one institution. There are, for example, three Arundel Publishing Company Lucille, each quite different. One is in Berkeley at the uh, Bancroft. One is in Wabash College. Uh, that's the copy that was once owned by Thomas Riley Marshall, uh, vice president under uh, Woodrow Wilson. And there's one on display in the cabinet here that belongs to the Book Arts Press. Uh, the Book Arts Press, at this point, has about 250, I guess I have to say 251, <laughs> given the quasi-one <laughs> that turned up just a few minutes ago. Uh, my wife and I own about 140. The Book Arts Press has a great many, which we do not have, but we have about 50, uh, which at this point in time, the Book Arts Press does not. Add all of that and subtract right, it, it uh, leaves about a hundred known editions, which neither we nor the Book Arts Press uh, possess at this point. Between 1985 and 1988, we collected 40 copies of Lucille before running into the first duplicate. This led me to wonder uh, just how many editions there were. Uh, there were a handful of records on, on Arlen and OCLC. Uh, and five years ago, the remote searching of library catalogs, which we routinely uh, do today, uh, was not, was barely possible. <coughs> On the assumption that, in any case, records for older books, like for Lucille, were not likely to have been retrospectively converted to online records, uh, at least in older and larger libraries, uh, I turned to the National Union catalog of pre-1956 imprints, Mansell, 
There I found records for 105 editions. I sat down and created a database, and I soon knew that 101 institutions had reported 329 copies. Out went a questionnaire, <coughs> and over the next few months, back they came. Rather naively, I assumed that the, the NUC records would be fairly accurate individually and together relatively complete. So the primary purpose of the questionnaire was to confirm whether the reported copies were still held in original bindings and to gather details that were not included on the, uh, on the records, the color of the cloth and the leather and, and so on. I did have the wit to ask libraries to include information on copies they held, but which, for one reason or another, had not been reported to NUC. Response to this questionnaire was, was, was generous. Only five libraries of 101 failed to reply at all, and another five seemed to have merged or otherwise gone out of business. The single large collection, which I have still not surveyed, is Harvard's, with 32 copies reported to the NUC. Harvard has not been able to find uh, staff time to corral the, the 32 copies and more, perhaps, from a dozen or more locations, and I haven't had opportunity to visit Cambridge. So, including the, the Harvard copies, uh, I have no information on 85 of the reported 329 copies, about a quarter, 26%. I did get information, however, on 244 copies. 56 of those 244, that's about 23%, were no longer held by the library which had reported them. 188, roughly 75, 77%, were still available. Of those 188, 125 were still in their original bindings, about two-thirds, 66%, while 41, about 20%, had been rebound in library cloths, uh, and there was some ambiguity about the remaining 22. <coughs> in hindsight, I think the survey led to only three possibly interesting conclusions. First, although the number of editions represented by the 105 NUC records was greater than 105, that is, some records had in fact collected books uh, which shared little more than a publisher. Collectively, the 329 copies represented a quite small sample of the total number of published Lucille. Second, even this sample had shrunk over the years by a quarter. And third, nearly a, nearly a third of the surviving three quarters had been rebound. <coughs> the rebound copies are adequate for reading, uh, though many printed on low-quality uh, papers were reported as fragile. But as surviving examples of Lucille, they're nearly as useless as the several copies microfilmed by Columbia as part of an NEH-funded project some years ago. Neither the bindings nor the end sheets were photographed, and when it proved the challenge to photograph a copy with elaborate page borders uh, printed in pins, you'll see a number of them open on the shelves, the camera operator opted for the text <coughs> leaving the borders to appear in a, as a kind of random smudging within which, if you know what the borders should look like, you can dimly make out a partial image. According to the provenance note on the catalog card which had been filmed with one of the books, this was Brander Matthews' copy. Matthews, as you may know, was a prominent critic of the turn of the century who contributed several valuable essays on contemporary bookbinding. It would have been pleasant to know which edition of Lucille and which binding he had admitted to his personal library. <coughs> uh, Tenzel has argued the theoretical necessity of saving all copies of all books. The case of Lucille suggests that the library community has quite a long way to go even to save a representative sample 
of late 19th century publications. Furthermore, most of the Lucille's in libraries reside in open collections. Uh, hardly anyone has judged this a rare book. <coughs> they need not, uh, they may not need to fear the depredations of readers. Uh, several libraries responding to the survey volunteered to comment that their copy or copies had never circulated. But they are subject, <laughs> they are subject to the, uh, to the vagaries of stack maintenance, preservation repairs, and, dare I say, the taste and knowledge of our collection development colleagues who may hesitate very briefly indeed when faced with a shelf of fragile or damaged, textually obsolete editions of a title, particularly one that might be available in a modern critical edition. That Lucille is not available in a modern critical edition may give it a, a measure of protection. <coughs> Early this year, uh, I posted a request to Ex Libris that libraries not included in that first survey report their Lucille to me as well. I haven't kept the results in a form that allows me to report accurate numbers easily, and frankly, I'm still integrating the data, but about 50 libraries reported uh, another 150 Lucille. Roughly one in three were previously unknown, and a fair number remain unique, such as a Lothrop, uh, a Boston publisher uh, edition in a, in a quite splendid binding that turned up at the University of Toronto, uh, otherwise completely unknown. Uh, relatively few unbound copies were reported. I don't know quite why that should be the case, given the large number of rebound copies in the earlier survey. Uh, bottom line, about 150 libraries hold about 550 copies of Lucille. Unless Harvard has it increased its holdings, uh, no library, no single library, holds more than 35 copies. Ten libraries hold 20 to 35 copies, and, and consequently, a, 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 a account for almost half that total of 550. A substantial number have been rebound, many are fragile. Uh, only a handful of editions are represented by as many as seven or eight copies. Uh, typically, I know of one or two or three, but rarely more than that. While these holdings in libraries are immensely important, one could barely begin to reconstruct Lucille's publishing history from them. To my knowledge, for example, no library holds a copy of a gift box, although this seems to have been the most common way the small format editions were sold. Our collection holds one such box, which thus identifies a, a troll Aleppo edition, but even it is missing the top paste down, which I'm sure must have been a plate in blazing color. Uh, and uh, although none accompany, uh, I'm sorry, let me start it again. Uh, ours is missing that, that, that the high point of the cover. And it's the only one I know about. But all of the publishers say we're, you know, the, the book will be issued in boxes at various times. <coughs> um, uh, none of these boxes accompany a Lucille. I was delighted to find on Sunday uh, that Terry has gathered upwards of 30 examples uh, from the same time period of gift boxes. Uh, not only Lucille, but I suspect a great many titles from the last quarter of the 19th century are represented by similarly fragmentary remains. Those of you who've had a chance to look through the exhibition which surrounds us uh, may also have begun to realize that of the editions and variant bindings which publishers advertise and publishers weekly, only a fairly modest selection is shown. It's true that we could hardly cram another book into the display, but it's also true that no copies of a great many advertised variants are as yet known to exist. My records for the University of Virginia copies was not complete. Uh, a couple of the book arts press copies uh, I'd not seen turned up while we were installing the exhibit, 
And so simply selecting books for this exhibit uh, added nearly 10 new additions to my, to my record. We also have a great deal of work left to do with Publishers Weekly. And Sunday afternoon, I was finally able to see the Microfiche edition of the Publishers Trade List Annual. Um, that's another story I won't go into. For 1903 alone, and just looking at the, at the catalogs from publishers uh, whose names began A through C and included Altimus, Burt, Caldwell, and Coates, there are illustrations for a half dozen series editions, uh, otherwise not reported. When I've been able to work through Publishers Trade List Annual uh, systematically, I'm confident we'll find evidence which collated against the known copies will push the probable number of editions well over 500, and probably even over 600. The second and third of your handouts uh, may help to make some sense of this huge variation. The second is a brief list of the major illustrated editions in addition to these, particularly after 1890, there were dozens of small format editions, both illustrated and not illustrated, brought out by mass market reprinters. The final handout is a list of Lucille's American publishers, so far as we've been able to identify them, some of whom published a single edition, uh, some dozens. <coughs> Notice, if you will, the asterisks beside some of the entries, which represent publishers for whom we have uh, evidence of an edition or editions uh, but have so far found uh, no, no known copy. I don't know what Terry is planning to do for room uh, to grow. The rotunda doesn't seem to me to be a particularly uh, easy place to add shelves. But yes, Betty and I uh, are planning to undertake the construction of another bookcase when we get back to Delta. <coughs> uh, when you look at this huge universe for a few months, or in my case, years, <coughs> What eventually strikes you is the large, even overwhelming percentage of individual Lucille's that are offered as one title within a name and typically an expanding series. Or as Lucille's reprinters would more typically say, a library. Now, William B. Todd has laid out the basic facts about series in his contribution to collectible books from New Pass, 1979, though his concern in that article is a, a few British series, and primarily the Tauchnitz edition, uh, on which his more recent uh, bibliography is based. <coughs> the only American series he mentions are the Little Blue Books and the Modern Library, and he simply names those in passing. Todd traces series publication to about 1800 uh, and to the uh, London Religious Tract Society, with new issues uh, first numbered in sequence by Thomas Cordieu from about 1817. Several of the British series that Todd discusses seem to me to be rather more sets published over time than series. For example, Tilt's Miniature Classical Library, published in 38 volumes over just two years, 1836 and 37, uh, or Warren's Warren's Bijou Books, 23 titles on croquet and other pastimes published in the 1860s. Moxton's uh, Miniature Poets, started in 1865, and the Lansdowne Poets, uh, comprising 25 early non-copyright authors started in the mid-1880s mid are more similar to the American libraries that were in full swing by the end of the 1870s. About the Lansdowne poets, Todd comments, quote, textually these are worthless, but the lavish gilt cover designs may be sufficiently interesting to those who desire only attractive books. However, the possibility of acquiring these in good condition is, I would say, even more, more remote than for the Moxon series, end quote. I have a rather mixed reaction to this assertion. 
textually worthless. Uh, those who desire only attractive books. But Todd is surely correct about the difficulty of today assembling any 19th century series, reassembling any 19th century series. The American experience with series is therefore not without precedent, but it seems to me to be qualitatively different from the British. I don't suppose, for example, that many individuals bought whole series, though we have one redline edition of Lucille into which an, er an owner has pasted a list of the series titles and has dutifully checked off the titles that he's been able to acquire uh, or to read. <coughs> we haven't found any invitation uh, to say subscribe to a series. And, it's and, and is it likely that any one buyer would have looked forward with equal enthusiasm to each of the four or five titles that John Lovell was bringing out week after week in the 1880s? One wonders, too, how many booksellers could be persuaded to stock entire series. Uh, for them to do so would seem to have required they give over shelf after shelf to the same titles in slightly different dress, sold at slightly varying prices. On the other side, and with exceptions, of course, it seems to me that a series reprinter must have been concerned above all with his list, but not beyond a point about the individual titles which made it up. Once a title was in a list, it didn't cost very much to keep it on the list, nor to produce further copies. I have yet to find a publisher advertising that he has made his list smaller and, say, more refined. They're always getting bigger. Always bigger. Series today are perhaps of interest to occasional bo individual book buyers, but they're unquestionably of continuing interest to libraries who can set up a standing order and trust the publisher to maintain quality in a selected subject area. The publisher, knowing her number of standing orders, has greater freedom to seek out appropriate titles for the series. Libraries, however, represented such a small market in the 1890s as to be irrelevant to the mass market of mass marketing of reprints. And as our surveys indicate, libraries were certainly not collecting uh, these books as they were published. What then made the series such an attractive marketing tool to the American reprint industry? To answer this, we have to recall a few background facts. First, the titles selected for these series were drawn from a few hundred primarily British standards each of which had already compiled a more or less compelling sales record. Second, since in the United States there was no copyright at all for non-American authors before 1892, and since copyright, when it did come in 1892, excluded all books published before July 1, 1891, the only capital at risk was that required to make or to rent electroplates, run off and bind some number of copies, and go forth and seek a market. To do this for an individual title, one of these individual standards, would have been madness. Most of the titles were already easily obtained in multiple editions. A series, however, could be more or less uniformly printed, more or less uniformly bound, and more or less uniformly priced. Booksellers, discount clubs, department stores, catalog houses, and even companies seeking books to package as premiums with their products could shop for the series they felt would appeal to the taste and purse of, purse of their own market segment and make a deal with the publisher that satisfied their own budget. Since the text was fixed, publishers could compete on appearance, novelty, and price. Lucille, in a way, became a bestseller because early on, in the modest dress of the Pickner and Fields blue and gold or diamond or cabinet edition, it had been a good seller. It was a book with a proven record not copyrightable because English. 
It lent itself to illustrations, and the American-made illustrations were copyrightable, giving the publisher, uh, using them, some control over that part of the work. The 1868 George de Maurier illustration, uh, commissioned by Chapman and Hall uh, in London, but printed at the same time for the Pickner and Peel's edition of the same year, were not thought by the critics to be very good. But one of the reasons they were used again and again and again is that they were English and therefore not copyrightable. Lucille also succeeded because it became a dependable gift book. Again, we've shown a few uh, inscriptions, um, many of which appear in the, uh, in the books. Um, most of them are uh, inscribed with a, just a simple uh, formula of to someone from someone else and often a date. Most of the recipients are women, uh, mothers, aunts, cousins, but a goodly number are men. Birthdays are frequently the occasion of the gift. Uh, New Year's Day turns up again and again, but overwhelmingly Christmas is the date that's, that's, that's recorded. Virtually all of the illustrated editions that are noted on your, on your handout, uh, and many of the named editions that were brought out by, uh, by Pearl, Estes and Laureate, Stokes, Altimus, and others were designed for the holiday market. By the end of the century, with Lucille available in new, uh, available new and colorful boxes and splendid bindings, at prices from ten cents to twenty-five dollars, and doubtless easily found in used bookstores as well, no literate person could have failed to supply himself or herself and all of his relatives and friends with copies at minor expense. I read an earlier version of this paper a few weeks ago to the Book Collectors Club of Tulsa. One of the members came up afterwards to tell me that he had inherited from three maiden aunts, all of whom graduated from the University of Kansas about 1910, more than 100 of the small format gift books. No Lucille's, but 100 others. <coughs> uh, and lots of Lucille's competition. The aunts had told him uh, that their collections originated with their swains who had brought them these small, colorful editions rather than flowers or chocolate. The aunts, like their friends, had confirmed their popularity with young men by the rate at which their collections grew. Happily adding books, not always read, but appreciated for their sentiment and attractiveness. <coughs> what I have by now very incompletely suggested uh, are two problems, each of which should be the subject of a full paper on another occasion. First, Lucille, it seems to me, raises an entirely new preservation issue. Over the last 20 years, the library community has developed a keen sense of preservation needs and some tools for dealing with them, but that machinery, imperfect as the Columbia microfilms make clear, is entirely directed at preserving the books that are already in our collection. Lucille, on behalf of a host of one-time competitors, asks, what about us? The books you didn't buy when we were new that you mostly added later, unselectively, by gift, whose job is it to preserve us? If it's the library community's job, then the library must become a museum of the book in a new sense. Second problem, the last half of the 19th century was the period during which printer separated from publisher separated from bookseller and they became independent streams of business activity. It was a time of great change in all of the processes of printing, illustrating, binding, and in the technologies of communication, uh, transportation, and management. It was the time of transition from a past that is really quite different from the present to the present itself. And we know very little about this time. 
There's some literature, a fair number of monographs, some studies of, of individual publishing houses. There's a great deal of ranting and raving about the nasty reprinters, those pirates who ignored the traditions and conventions of publishing and forced change on an occupation for gentlemen. But we know almost nothing about the electroplaters, the bookbinders, the salesmen, the entrepreneurs who saw in the production of millions of cheap books an opportunity to advance their fortune. Well, the dinner hour is upon us and we must stop. Owen Meredith, however, has earned the last word, and we want to end this talk with lines which seem destined to be immortal. Uh, Vargrave and the Duke have been riding across Europe, and near the end of part one, canto two, we have verses 17, 18, and 19. 17 begins. At length, at the door of the inn, Le Harrison, pray go there if ever you go to Luchon. The two horsemen, well pleased to have reached it, alighted and exchanged their last greetings. The Frenchman invited Lord Alfred to dinner. Lord Alfred declined. He had letters to write and felt tired, so he dined in his own room that night. With an unquiet eye, he watched his companion depart, nor knew why, beyond all accountable reason or measure, he felt in his breast such a sovereign displeasure. The fellow's good-looking, he murmured at last, and yet not a coxcomb. Some ghost of the past vexed him still. If he loved her, he thought, let him win her. And then he turned to the future and ordered his dinner. <laughs> Verse 18. O oh, hour of all hours, the most blessed upon earth, blessed hour of our dinners, the land of his birth, the face of his first love, the bills that he owes, the twaddle of friends and the venom of foes, the sermon he heard when to church he last went, the money he borrowed, the money he spent. All of these things a man shall relentlessly gnaw and pursue him with some ache or pain, and trouble remorseless his best ease, as the furies once troubled the sleep of Orestes. And then verse 20. We may live without poetry, music, and art. We may live without conscience and live without heart. We may live without friends. We may live without books. But, but civilized man cannot, cannot live without, without cooks. <laughs> he may live without books. What is knowledge but grieving? He may live without hope. What is hope but deceiving? He may live without love. What is passion but pining? But, but where, where is, is the man, man that, that can, can live, live without, without dining? dining? Thank you very much.